Okay, now has it been um, the case over the last uh, few Sunday nights that you have been asking the question, why? Have you been asking, why on earth are we having this short-ish sermon series in Genesis chapter 3? Why? Why go here of all places? Why Genesis 3? Well, part of the uh, answer to that is really quite simple. We've been in Genesis 3 uh, to consider our sin, that just as it benefits a patient uh, to know something of the depth and the extent of their disease, so it also benefits the believer, the Christian, to know something more of the spiritual ailment of our hearts, to know something more of our sin. So why have we been in Genesis 3? To see face to face our corruption and the fall. That's part of the answer. But that's not the whole picture. Far from it. Um, get this, part of the reason we've been in Genesis chapter 3 is to draw forth praise from our congregation and our church. Is it not the case that the more you consider as a Christian your sin, the more you appreciate what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for you? The more we consider this disease, this ailment in our hearts, Isn't that the case that the more gratitude we have to the one who has provided for you and for me the cure? Draw forth praise from our hearts. Well, tonight I am enthused. And you may say, but you're always enthused. But especially the case tonight, I'm enthused. Now, I will tell you why that is. It's because this evening we will see both goals, both elements of this sermon series in high definition. Like tonight in verses 20 to 24, you will see, we will see our sin very, very clearly in these verses. Yes, but we will also see in high definition in verse 20 to 24, the immeasurable goodness that God has shown us sinful people. Our sin, but God's goodness. So have you got your Bible there? Scripture open, verse 20 to 24. If so, this is the first thing that I think we need to notice and consider. And that is faith in the promise of God. The first thing we see here is faith in the promise of God. Now, we've all been there, I'm sure. We've all, at the end of our busy day, we've all sat down on our couch and we've got a cup of tea in our hand. And we're going to watch the latest installment of that drama series or murder mystery, Netflix or the TV. And we're sitting down, we're ready to go, we're ready to watch it. And what do we have to endure every time? I have to endure a recap. There's always, when you try to get into the next installment, there's always this 20, 30 seconds uh, rehashing flashback to what? To not only what's happened up to this point in the series, but there's always that attempt to try and get you to remember the tension from the cliffhanger in the last installment of the series. Isn't that right, the recap? Well, if you were here, do you remember the tension from last time, from last Sunday night? What's, where are we? Do you feel the tension? Do you sense the tension? What's just happened in the background? God has just pronounced his penalty on, on humanity and Adam. Do you feel the tension? Like we've just been told, what, what death has come to us. Death is, is, is going to reign. There's this incredible tension at this point as we come into verse 20. And if you appreciate even something of that tension, don't you think that what happens next is the weirdest thing in the world? 
Look at it. Doesn't it seem so anticlimactic? Look at verse 20. What happens? There's this build-up attention. The ground is cursed. Death is upon humanity. And what do we learn? What does Adam do in response? Adam says, okay, I'm going to give my wife a new name. Isn't it? In all seriousness, is it not anticlimactic? Does it not seem strange? Now, so unusual is this response from Adam that a number of suggestions have been put forward as to what is actually going on here in the text. Let me walk you through it very briefly. The first suggestion is that what you're dealing with in front of you just now is a mistake. See, I don't know if you've had the misfortune of reading ever a liberal scholar or a critical scholar in the biblical text. If that is before you, if you have the opportunity of doing that, then do not bother yourself. Because what you will find in a critical scholar, liberal scholar, is the arrogance of the modern mind. Their first assumption is that the writers of scripture were stupid. And that's very much what we're dealing with here, because you will have a whole plethora of liberal scholars saying that this here is a mistake. That what the author of Genesis has done, wait for it, is forget that he has already recorded that Adam has named his wife. You see, oh, he's forgotten it, so he's just doing it again. Now, you and I can see that that is nonsensical. Why is it nonsensical? Because is there not a difference to be wrestled with here? What happens in chapter 2? Adam names his wife what? Woman. In Genesis 3, what does he do? Do you see there's a progression? It's not woman. What does he do? He names his wife Eve. It's different. This is not just a rehashing, is it? It's not just rep. This is not a mistake, people. That's the first suggestion. The second suggestion is this. Why is Adam naming his wife here? Some people say that this is the beginnings of the fall and sin working itself out. Um, Most of you, I think, were here, was it three weeks ago, three Sunday nights ago, when we had that really difficult sermon on the nature of the heart of the woman. If you're here, you won't have forgotten that. That was a difficult text for us to wrestle with. Now, do you remember, even from the reading, what part of the penalty upon women was? Do you remember? It was that man would rule over. Man would lord it, in a sense, over woman. Do you see what the suggestion is? The suggestion is that Adam naming Eve is the beginnings of that harshness from man, that he is here seeking sinfully to exert his authority by naming woman again. Now, I've got a slight problem with that. The problem is that this this scriptural text does not in any way suggest that or hint at that. Like, what do we know? We know that naming was not inherently sinful because Adam did it in chapter 2, didn't he, before the fall, and so if this was Adam sinfully seeking to lord over his wife, then wouldn't we expect scripture to intimate that or hint at it? And it doesn't do so. So is everyone with me so far? This is not, Adam is naming his wife. This is not a mistake. It's not a mistake. Nor does it seem to be an inherently sinful act. So I will come to the third suggestion. What's going on here? I love this. 
Here, what I think is happening is that Adam is demonstrating faith in God's promise of a saviour. In naming his wife, he is demonstrating faith in God's promise of a saviour. My dad and I were talking this afternoon about Paradise Lost, Mill's work on this. And uh, my dad showed me part of it where uh, Adam uh, is said to be in tears at this point of the story in Genesis. And of course it's speculation, but don't you think, maybe, you think about it, and he's just realising maybe what's happened, what has he done? What has he done? And he's just consigned himself to death and his wife to death and they have kids, you know, and the earth is scarred and there's tears perhaps. I think though, I think through the tears, there's one phrase that is dominating Adam's thinking at this point here. Because wait a minute, what did we read? What has God just said to the serpent? Can you remember what God has just said? God has promised that Adam and Eve are going to have kids, that life is going to continue, isn't it? But what else has God promised? God has promised that one day a seed is going to arise and do what? Defeat Satan and win salvation. So what has God promised? Follow me on this. What has God promised? He's promised life, hasn't he? God has promised physical life that's going to continue. God has promised spiritual life, life and salvation. He's promised life. And I ask you, think about it. What is the very first thing that Adam does after the penalties have been issued? What is the first response from Adam? You say to me, he names his wife. What does he name, woman? Eve. What does Eve mean? Life. God promises in the penalties. I promise life, physical life. I promise spiritual life. I promise life and salvation. And Adam responds, I name her life. Do you see it? Isn't it as though Adam is screaming out to God, I, I, I believe this promise. At last, Adam is responding with faith. Do you see it? I believe you. I believe what you're saying. One commentator says this, that what you've got in front of you is Adam's clear act of faith. Another says this, that this here is the first illustration of a man coming to God by faith. A man believing for the first time in the coming one who would destroy Satan. It's a lovely thing, isn't it? If we grasp it, isn't it beautiful? Adam names woman life. He believes in the promise of the seed. Now this is great, I love it. But how does it relate to us in here at London City Presbyterian Church? I think the clearest application, if I'm honest, is for those in here this evening who know not the Lord Jesus Christ. For you in here, if you are not believing today in the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I be really bold with you tonight if you're not a Christian? Please. Can I guess at how you sometimes feel at London City Presbyterian Church? Can I guess that you sometimes feel rather uncomfortable in this place? Not because it's freezing cold in here tonight and not because the seats are really uncomfortable. But isn't it the case that you feel rather uncomfortable because you think, well, if these people around you just now, if they knew what you were really like, would you think like this? Do you think if these people knew that how much I drank or if these people knew my sexual activity, or if these people around here, if they knew what I spoke like Monday to Saturday, 
Do you think the people around you, well, first of all, they might not want to know me all that much, but second of all, do you think, well, if they really knew me, they would not think Christianity was for me? If you, if that has even crossed your mind once, think about what we're dealing with here. Who is it that is demonstrating faith in God's promise this evening? Who is this? This is the very person who has brought pain and suffering into the world. Like, who is it here that has the door of salvation open to them here? I mean, this is a person who is, who is responsible for the death of billions of people around the world. He's responsible for everyone's death, in fact. Here's the guy who, who's had the ground cursed. He's the one who's brought disease into the world. And yet the door of salvation is open to him. Do you not then see a message here in Scripture for you tonight? If you're unbelieving, it is not the case that you are too wicked for the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not that you are beyond grace. And I long for you to see that that sin in your life, it doesn't render you unfit for Christianity. That sin in your life is the very reason that you need the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, we see here faith and faith in the promise of God. He names woman. What does he name her? Life. Second thing we see is a hint, no more, a hint of the provision of God. A hint of the provision. Here we move on. Are you following the text through? We next come to Adam and Eve getting dressed. If you want to put it like that, Adam and Eve get dressed. Now, uh, I think if we're going to appreciate uh, the next part of uh, Genesis 3, we have to right now remember what's happened earlier on in the, in the chapter. Maybe even the, the boys and the girls and the kids can remember. Can you refresh your memories? What happened in Genesis 3? So Adam and Eve have sinned, have they? Yep. They've eaten the fruit and their eyes were opened and they realized that they were naked. And what did they do? They attempted to cover their shame and their sin with fig trees, garment fig trees, fig leaves. They attempted to hide their sin from God. They attempted but failed. Well, in light of the absolutely atrocious, abominable way that they have acted, do you not agree with me, Christian friend, that where we come to next in verse 21 is absolutely stunning and staggering? Look at the first five words. Come on, let's look at it. Look at them with me, the first five words. And the Lord God made new garments for them. I have sat with that all week. God made them garments. And really, as a Christian, does it not delight your heart and soul? I mean, think about who these people are. They deserved hell, and they deserved immediate death. And wait... What does the one that they have offended do? What does the one that they have sinned against do? What does he do? He goes to them and he covers them. And he, the one who has been sinned against, the one that they've rejected and hated and turned away, he goes to them and he covers them. He makes a garment for them, isn't it? Isn't it the most gracious thing, the most beautiful thing? But it's actually, Christian friend, the form of the garment that we need to think about and focus on um, I was up in Edinburgh for most of this past week 
Um, I was at a presbytery conference. It sounds, it, it was better than it sounds. All right. It was. It was good. It was a time of prayer and a time of fellowship and a time of, yeah, talks. In one of the talks that we had, uh, the speaker, the lecturer, laboured a particular point that sounds very simple, but was not. And he was laboring the importance of words in Scripture. Now, do you, do you see it? Not so much the importance of systematics, of course, that's important, and not so much the, the importance of big ideas, but he was saying it's, it's so important to pay attention to the particular words in the Bible. Words hold the key, the whole key. And I want you to understand that you've got that in front of you right now. Because you see this, now follow me, please. This word, the Hebrew word for the garment that God has made for Adam and Eve is the very same Hebrew root word for the garments that the high priest wore. The high priest garments. So everyone with me? It is the same word, an unusual Hebrew word. Adam's garment, same word as the high priest garment. Now this is what, I'm going to get everyone to work with me on this, especially the younger people. So boys and girls, you listen to me. Now everybody knows... Who was the first recipients of Genesis chapter 3? We know that it was the Mosaic community, wasn't it? Moses. Yeah? This is what I want everyone to do, because it's late and we're cold. I want you to imagine that you were there in the Mosaic community, hearing Genesis chapter 3 read aloud. Can you imagine that for me? Let's imagine some Middle Eastern sun. Let's imagine, you know, the tabernacle. We're gathered with the people of Israel. And, and someone stands up and they read aloud Genesis chapter 3. This very, and what have we just learned? We've, we're hearing it read aloud and we've just learned, oh, wait a minute, the garment is the same word as the garment of the high priest. Now we are part of the Mosaic community, aren't we? So what do we know about the high priest's robes? We know that those robes are deeply symbolic. Don't we know that? We're part of the Mosaic community. We know that the chess piece, it represented, it was symbolic, wasn't it? It represented all the 12 tribes and the colors even of the robes for the high priest. Remember the colors, they were deeply symbolic, you know, representing even the holiness required to come. So we know, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Those robes were symbolic, and it's the same word. Are these robes here with Adam and Eve, are they symbolic? And then what happens? Then what happens? Then this man before, as he reads out the end of the verse, and we hear that with Adam and Eve, God has not woven together wool to make garments for Adam and Eve, and he has not used some crazy material, he's not miraculously made something. We learn and remember we are the cultic community. We know these things. We know it. We learn that God has killed to provide these garments for Adam and Eve. And then it hits us, doesn't it? Then all goes quiet and the penny drops and we realize the symbolism in these garments for Adam and Eve. What do we realize we realize here God is providing a hint at how he will deal with sin. That we see in these garments that to cover sin, what will God do? But he will see 
an innocent die, that to cover sin, that there will be a substitutionary death. What do we see? What do we hear in these garments? We see a hint at the coming importance of sacrifice. And if you are new to the church, and if you are new to Christianity, you must understand what I'm going to say to you. That what begins here will unfold throughout the Bible. What you are seeing in embryonic form, sin being dealt with by sacrifice, is going to unfold all through the Bible. Abraham and Isaac and the temple system and the Passover feast. But where will it reach fulfillment? Sin being dealt with by sacrifice. Well, we'll see it at the cross. We will see it at Calvary. But if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ tonight, is it not the case that as you look at these symbolic garments that, that clothe Adam and Eve, that your heart sings? Because Christian friend, what has God done for you? He stooped down and clothed you. And he has covered you. And we say, don't we, what about how and, and, and what is it? Yes, he has provided the lamb who would be sacrificed, the lamb who would be slain. He has seen his only dear begotten, eternally begotten son, sacrificed. And why? To cover our shame, to cover our sin. I mean, does it not move you? Does it not stir you? Does it not provide some impetus if for our devotional life, even this coming week, what has God done in the gospel? He has clothed his people. And he has clothed us through sacrifice. So we see faith in the promise of God and we see a hint at the provision of God. And then lastly, we see the hope of the presence of God. The hope of the presence of God And here, I feel like a boxing promoter. You know that moment, if you've ever watched boxing, uh, where almost mysteriously a microphone will come down from the ceiling, won't it? And the boxing promoter takes it in his hand and he says what? He always says, and now for the main event. And is that not where we come to now? In verse 22 to 24, Is this not, in a sense, the main event in Genesis 3? Because what happens? God removes Adam and Eve from paradise. I I read a marvelous story uh, this week about this. It it involved a minister. And the minister preached on uh, Genesis. The very verses were in 22 to 24. He preached a sermon. He thought it was a stirring sermon. On Genesis 3, 22 to 24. And he finishes the sermon, benediction. He goes to the door, the front door of the church. And uh, everyone files out and shakes his hand. And a little boy came up to the minister afterwards. And he, just at the door, he shakes the minister's hand. And he says, Reverend, I've done a drawing for you. And uh, the pastor takes the, the drawing and he looks at it. And it's a drawing of a car. And it's got a driver and two people in the back seat. And the pastor's looking at us. Uh, Yeah, thanks. Uh, Why have you drawn this for me? And the little boy's like, because it's God 
driving Adam and Eve out of Eden. And it's good, isn't it? It's nice in a way, but isn't it marvelous, though, that the little boy picked up on the language of Genesis 3? I wonder if you noticed the repetition. Did you see it? Look at verse 23. So we are told, first of all, that God sent Adam and Eve out of Eden. Now, we might think, could we be mistaken there? And we might think, oh, well, that seems pretty sedate. He's just sent, he's just asked him to leave. But you look with me at verse 24 and look at the language. It does say that, now it's so important, Adam was driven out. And we're all together, aren't we, that there's real force. I mean, Adam was not politely asked to leave the Garden of Eden. He was booed out. He was kicked out. He was forced out. Remember the word. He was driven out of Eden. Now, we could, I think, consider, we could spend time considering the real severity of this punishment. This is the end, in a sense, isn't it? Oh, come on, if you've been here for this sermon series, isn't this the end? I mean, now what's, what's happening? Man is removed from the very presence of God. He no longer is to know God, no longer have the intimacy. We could focus on that. But what I want you to pick up on is the reason that our great God gives for kicking Adam out. Do you see the reason? Look at it in verse 22. God tells you, why is Adam driven out of Eden? Now, if we were to answer, we would say it's a punishment because of sin. But look what God actually says. We kick him out of Eden. Why? Lest he eat from the tree of life and live forever. And I ask you, Christian friend, if you consider that, do you not see the incredible goodness and grace of God bursting forth? Because why does God remove Adam from Eden It's a punishment for sin, but isn't it more? It's to ensure that mankind is not unchangeably condemned. Because think of it, if Adam was to eat the tree of life in his present sinful state, what would that mean? That would mean that Adam and you and me and all of his progeny and all of his offspring, if he was to eat in that sinful state from that tree of life, we would be unchangeably condemned. So what does God do? He kicks Adam out lest he eat of the tree. And what does God do by his grace? He leaves the door to a future salvation. He leaves that door ajar. And I hope and pray that you understand how that future salvation would come to the church. I hope you understand how re-entry way, how does re-entry come to the presence of God? Do you remember the first reading? Do you? In Mark chapter 1, what was the language in Mark chapter 1? What was said in Mark 1? That just as here God drove Adam out into the wilderness because of his disobedience. What does Mark 1 say? That God drove the Lord Jesus Christ out into the wilderness. Why? To demonstrate his perfect obedience in the face of satanic temptation. And that, dear friends, in conjunction with Christ's 
sin-bearing death enabled our Lord to say what to the thief that hung next to him on the cross? What could Jesus say to that dying thief? Today, you will be in the presence of God. Today, you will be with me and where? In paradise. You will be with God in the garden. You see, the only way back into the presence of God is through the spilled blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, in this sermon series, we have seen our wretchedness, haven't we? The corruption of the human heart, but we have marveled at the grace of God. Even tonight, think about it. He alone, he alone is the one who can save the worst of sinners. He alone is the one who can provide a covering for sin. And Christ alone is the only one tonight who can assure you, Christian friend, that you will one day be in truly the presence of God, all in that city where the tree of life stands, and all and all and all by the blood of the Lamb spilt for you. May we this evening first repent of our sin, but may we join together and praise God for what? For his amazing grace. Let's pray.